Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you're listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. She is a designer and a spiritual director. I have with me Megan Trishler. Hi, Meg. Hey, Shonda. So good I'm, to be here. It's so good to have you here. I'm very excited about our conversation. So I want to start with you like I do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Hmm. It's such a good question. I was actually reflecting on this a little bit um, this week because I've been thinking about labor just in general. And because we're recording this in the season of Advent, starting Advent in the Christian calendar, um, you know, which is a really a time of expectant waiting. I've just been thinking about labor and what that means and what that looks like. And um so I think when I'm thinking about labor, the thing that I long to do, the thing that gives me joy, and the thing that is also hard and painful and difficult, I think it has something to do with gathering people and guiding people. And that has taken a lot of different shapes over the course of my career and continues to take a lot of different shapes uh, now. But I think... Uh, I think that that's ex- actually what it is. It's it's gathering and guiding people. That's amazing. I gathering and guiding. Um, so the first thing that came to my mind as you said that is a shepherd, because mm. uh, that's kind of the essential role, <laughs> right? Gather and guide. Um, and then the very next thought without any pause was that's hard, (laughs) uh, you know, the challenges in that. So I am very excited to dig deeper into so many things, but let's start with how did this become a, a labor of love for you? Where is this passion or calling rooted? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's it's great because I've actually been reflecting on that just personally as well. Um, I guess maybe just a little bit of my story. I, I went to school to train in graphic design. So my heart has always been for design. And I think as I was, um, you know, college student and learning more about what design is, I was starting to see that in so many ways, design is really about making things common, making things whole, bringing together disparate parts bringing clarity to the function of or definition of something. And that was really exciting for me. And I think, you know, as a young student going to school in the, um, the urban core of Detroit, what I was uh, beginning to sense and see was that my interest was um, moving away from just figuring out how typography and image works together on a page. And I was becoming much more interested in how people come together in space and what it looks like to, to design that well and to do that well. Um, and not just for the sake of it, you know, not just for the sort of a great party, but, you know, um, beyond that, how do you bring people together in a way that, that emboldens them to act or to do or to move in some way? And I've always sort of had a heart for, for cities and um, working with people who, who want to play an active role in shaping the places that they live. And so, you know, that kind of then became sort of just a curiosity. How do you bring people together in such a way that emboldens them to play an active role in impacting their community? And so, um, so that was sort of being formed in me, I think, early on as a design student. And then I, you know, in the, for the past 10 years, I've, I've really worked more so kind of in community development, nonprofits, philanthropies, community groups, doing that kind of work, just sort of on the ground, you know, helping people um, uh, navigate uh, working together. 
And so, yeah, so it's been there, it's been there for a long while. Um, and, and I think I've just been able to sort of exercise it more and more and see that it's just something I, I feel called to do, something I enjoy doing. I love the path of the journey uh, and going from this space of um, inanimate, you know, design, pictures, you know, this kind of uh, more abstract, you know, how do these things work together to transitioning to people? That's so profound. And you said something that I'm like, did I know that? I don't know that I knew that. I, where did you go to school? For undergrad. I went, yeah, I went to the College for Creative Studies in Detroit. Ah, did you know I was born and raised in Detroit? Yes, I okay. that so now, it's, like, I <laughs> it's like, did we talk about this? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Okay, so yeah. there's that, Mike. We probably knew. Go. I know, I just forgot. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I am fascinated by that. It also, I think as I go through these podcasts, and I talk to so many just amazing, awesome people who do amazing, awesome things. I always like to point out to my listeners, those who may find themselves pondering and reflecting on some of the similar things. What is my labor of love? Honestly, that's one of my hopes. I, in addition to people hearing the labors of others and their, and their passions, it sparks this curiosity within them. What is my labor? And I love that so many people don't necessarily end up or don't start in that passion or it doesn't look the way that it will ultimately look for them. And I hope that's encouraging that, you know, it can be very scary to pivot and transition to something new. Even if we feel pretty confident in our ability and skill to do it, transitions are challenging. Change is lost. All change is lost. Loss is hard. Mm -hmm. And so I I like um, that you're able to reveal that there was these, these threads that you could pull through, but it looks very different than it did 15 years ago, maybe when you were in design school or planning to do that. And so I really appreciate that. And so can you tell us a little bit about um, how that has manifested? I'm particularly interested in people hearing about people's liberty and how that trends, because I find that to be so amazing in in what it was able to do. So yeah, can you share that? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Yeah, you know, and and I want to point out something you said that I think is really, um, it's landed on me in in a helpful way. I think when you're working with inanimate things, like words and pictures and trying to figure out how those are going to work together on a page, you know, which is a a dumbed down version of what design is, but let's, you know, a basic definition of sort of a communication designer. I think there's a skill to that, but you're working with inanimate things. I think when you're working with people, right, as we know, it's constantly evolving. And so I think there's a part of working with people and designing spaces and experiences and guiding people through something that is a real challenge. And I think there's something about that that I really appreciate and, and really like. There's sort of, it's dynamic. It's constantly evolving and constantly changing, which I'm learning about myself is also something that, that is attractive to me. I, I want to be in those spaces that aren't static. Um, but, but to your question, um, you know, I came to Cincinnati about seven years ago now. It was an invitation from um, the Hale Foundation, a private family foundation here in our city. Um, the foundation was just asking some really interesting questions. And for me, like, I think that's where all great projects and adventures start. Um, it's, it's the asking of really good questions. And the Hale Foundation was asking some questions like, how do we be more experimental with our grant making? Um, what does it look like to have a physical ground floor storefront space from which we operate? Um, which is unique for a foundation because so many foundations are on the top floor of nondescript downtown buildings, really removed from the communities and the people they're investing in. And then probably the most important and interesting question to me at the beginning of that journey and that process was how do we sort of uncover and equip and invest in the next generation of leadership in our city? And so, um, we developed People's Liberty as essentially kind of a skunk lab for the foundation. It was, it was predicated on this idea that we're going to experiment with some new ways of doing um, grant making and grant giving, and it's going to be centered on people. So it's going to be direct grants to individuals to go bring to life passions and projects and ideas that they care about to impact the places that they live. 
Um, and so we developed a, a, a process. Um, you know, it was, there was some nine months of figuring out, you know, with the IRS, how do you legally cut checks to people? Um, but beyond that, you know, it was really about how do we sort of, um, yeah, how do we support people to get their good ideas off the ground? And so People's Liberty was designed to be a five-year initiative. So it was designed from the start to have a, a stop, you know, a stop and a start to be bookend so that we could just really see, is there something to this idea of giving grants to people? And over the course of five years, I think, you know, we, we invested in more than 100 individuals um, for their specific project ideas. Um, I ran our internship program, which was 30 young, you know, emerging level creatives coming to work with a part of our staff for three months at a time to develop their skills. And, um, and that was a real joy. And then mainly it was about shaping a space and a culture um, within which new ideas, bold ideas are welcomed and not only welcomed, but invested in and encouraged. And so, so much of what that work was, was accompanying people. If I look at like, it, this, this wasn't my job on paper, but my job was accompanying people to make those new things come to life. Um, and I've always sort of thought about that as sort of like my role was a midwife. I was just there. It's your idea. It's your seed. <laughs> it's your vision. I'm just going to hold your hand and help you navigate the way forward. And what a joy to get to do that. It was a beautiful, it was hard, really hard. Everything about that book of work was difficult because it was new, but um, yeah, it was a real joy and got to just really meet some amazing individuals in this city who just care, who just care about this place and feel called to invest in it. Um, and it was beautiful to also see how people were finding ways to align their gifts, the things that they care about to a, a real need in our city, a real opportunity in our city. Um, so yeah, a, a beautiful thing. Just sounds absolutely fascinating and fantastic. One of the things you said was um, it was um, a time limited experience um, to see, is there something to this? So what was the conclusion? Is there something to that uh, that process or that re-envisioned way of investing in a city? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I think there were a lot of lessons learned from that, but I, I do think one of the most interesting bits was like, um, yeah, activating a building, activating a space, programming a space and keeping that as kind of an anchor um, place in a neighborhood. I think that was a real learning and something that was a beautiful way for a foundation to actually physically invest in a place, you know, and have a staff and a resources kind of central into a location. But I think the biggest thing was, you know, so much of philanthropy, it's, it's who you know, right? And so you're, if you're in the tent, you might get the funding. If you're not in the tent, you don't get the, you don't have the access. And so what I always thought that we were doing was democratizing the Rolodex we were, broad, we were broadening who has access to those pockets, to those um, uh, networks of influence. And I think by using the grant, which was always an open call, um, we always had a process in place where we didn't decide. We had external juries who would vet the ideas. I think what it allowed the foundation to do, this in this case, one particular foundation, was broaden their net about how good ideas and things and people worth investing in come to them. Mm. And I think, honestly, I think there's a noticeable gap. I think now a year after People's Liberty, I think if you talk to some of the folks at the foundation, they would say, I'm not sure how we're finding new things. I'm not sure how we're going about learning who's in the nooks and crannies of Cincinnati doing deeply important work for the sake of our people and our, and our neighborhoods. Um, so I think it's a fantastic way to develop community. And um, yeah, I hope it's, I hope those lessons are now transformed into sort of whatever's next beyond people's liberty. So yeah, thank you for that. And it, it access is so important. You yeah. know, as you were talking about that, uh, it brought me to this space I found myself over the last week or so, where I am uh, in communication with a couple of people and we're uh, deciding to partner to do some work. 
And within that partnership, we are, I think, wisely asking some very important questions before we jump into, okay, what are we doing? And that's something that I think I've learned throughout my journey as an entrepreneur, but also just as I mature and heal, one, I'm used to doing things on my own and I get things done and I get them done pretty well. Um, not because I necessarily want to, but because I do not have a well-built muscle of partnership um, for many reasons. And so as I'm looking to collaborate and partner, I want to make sure that muscle is developed for me. And one of our last conversations with said partners was we need to talk about power mm. and what that looks like within our partnership. And I'm like, okay, I, I need to spend some time with that. I have never sat down and like been very intentional to say, what is power? What does that look like? What does that feel like? Who has it? Who does it? Like, what does that mean? And it has been a very fascinating reflection, um, exploration more aptly, an exploration to, for me, <laughs> people know, like I'm big on what are my littles doing, right? So what do, what I think of power right now as an a, almost 40 year old entrepreneur it's very different than what my four-year-old thought of power, what my nine-year-old thought of power, what my 14-year-old thought of power, my teenager, my young adult self. And so I've tried to spend time with each of those parts of myself to say, so what, what is power? And one generalized con consensus that I was able to come to is that for me, the conception or the conceptualization of power equaled authority authority equaled decision-making, decision-making equaled access. Wow. And so I was able to follow that trail and it, it really did come down to who has access. Now that has taken on so many numerous things in my exploration. So when you started talking about who has access to the tent, which one of my favorite books is a book called The Red Tent by Anita Diamante. Love, Diamante, I think is her last name. Love the book. So tent, my brain is all over the place, Meg. You got me. I love it. And I'm like, who has access to the tent? That was so powerful because it doesn't mean you're not doing anything powerful or meaningful. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not important and valuable work, but who has access? For me, that, it, that meant over time, who had access to my body? Who had access to my time? Who had access to my space and how I grew up without boundaries um, because I was never taught to restrict access or that I could restrict access. Um, so I, I'm very fascinated by this, this concept of access equaling power and the restriction to and all of that. So Wow. I, that's really interesting you bring it up because the conversation around power and authority uh, has just been... Yeah, it's something that's fresh within me as well and something I'm in a lot of conversations about. And I love what you're saying about access. Um, you know, it's interesting, People's Liberty, you know, the name People's Liberty um, was, a, was a, a throwback name. The Hale Foundation um, is part of U.S. Bank. And it used to be, there was People's Liberty Bank in Northern Kentucky. Um, and over a series of kind of um, acquisitions, what was formerly People's Liberty became what is now U.S. Bank. And that's where we took the name from. However, it, it wasn't lost on, on us that this idea of people's liberty, this kind of like power to the people, there's a real message of freedom in that, you know, that, that you, ha you know best. It's your place. It's your neighborhood you are the one who has not just the, um, the, the wisdom, but you should have the authority to act. You should have the say, you should have the voice, the power should be in your hands, as opposed to the way it typically works, right? Which is, it's the person with the most dollars, with the most access that gets to make, as you said, the decisions. And um, so in some ways, so just to tie it back to people's liberty, I think that's what we were interested in exploring. I don't think if you would have asked me five years ago, is this an exploration in power and authority? I didn't have the insight to be able to do that. It's only in hindsight that I've seen how that unfolds. But the other thing you said that's so interesting to me is um, 
or I should say that that's been really, that I've just been thinking a lot about is, you know, power, I think because in our culture, power is so easily abused. Um, I think we like to sort of sometimes sort of those of us who don't have power or don't think we have power, I should say, will shy away from it when it's, when it's, um, when it's given. And I'm just, just thinking personally about this. Um, and I think power in and of itself, of course, is not bad. It's just easily corruptible. And I am very suspicious of authority that does not come with responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what we see in power abuse is a lot of authority, a lot of say, a lot of decision-making um, weight, but without the responsibility, um, the burden of what it means to carry that authority. And so I've just really been thinking about when you have that power and authority, what does it look like to steward it well? And to not to step away from it because in and of itself, it's not bad. We just have a lot of images of like bad leadership (laughs) that hasn't stewarded it well. And so even, you know, for you and I here as, as women, um, you know, what does it look like to, to, to model a different way of leading and to recognize that when we have that power and authority, it also comes with responsibility. And um, yeah, these are some things I'm just interested in right now. <laughs> now that, that's good. <laughs> I was like, ooh, yes. It's the authority without responsibility. Yeah, I'm suspect Dude. of that. I'm suspect of it. I, I, I am too. Like, I don't know yeah. that I would have put words to it, but that is so apt, right? Like, the ability to make a decision. So for me, it's, um, I, I will frequently say that the, the feeling of choice is a privilege to those who experience safety. It doesn't mean that we all have choice. I want to say that, excuse me. You're going to have to edit that one. Sorry. Got caught up in there. Um, go back. I'm going to go back to the quote, okay, <laughs> to make it easy for you. So something I'll frequently say is the feeling of choice is a privilege to those who experience safety. And what I mean by that is while we all have choice, it doesn't always feel like a choice. And so when, you, when we were talking about this authority without responsibility, there are those who um, have the authority to make decisions I think the thing that is driving me now, um, I'm, I'm on this quest. What, what does my, how does my labor of love translate in 2025? Right. And I am so uh, committed and moving towards, I want to work with influencers, whatever that means. And I want to help them heal. Why? Mm -hmm. Because their decisions impact so many people. Mm -hmm. I, I say this and I'm being real, like, about 60,000 people wrote Kanye West's name on the ballot for president of the United right. States. Yeah. 60,000 people. This isn't political at all. This is just telling me the man has influence, mm. but he's so unhealed. Mm, right. and, and whatever decision he makes, whether he likes it or not, influences how someone else makes a decision. Can you imagine a world where I will even be reasonable and say a quarter, 25% of the world's influential people began to make decisions from a space of healing and wholeness instead of their woundedness and their brokenness. Can you imagine that world? What a beautiful vision. I can. I can be instrumental in helping that happen because we have so many people, whether it is literally an Instagram model who makes a decision to wear an outfit that then causes a hundred thousand other people to go put their spending dollars in that one company all the way to government and religious leaders, like their decisions in their life, not even decisions. They're saying I'm making this decision on behalf of this community, on behalf of this church, on behalf of this government, the ones they make in their own personal lives, impact other people. All of our decisions impact others. There's no single decision that I'm going to make that doesn't impact someone else. However, when we understand how influence works, so I am so driven and committed to moving. I have no idea what it's going to look like, but moving into that space because there is a responsibility Mm -hmm. that 
whether a person acknowledges the responsibility or not, the responsibility is there. And helping people learn how to heal so they can carry it in a way that can be safe for them and others. It's just not what people are taught. And as a visual, what this reminded me of is um, I'm a person that once I start something, I don't like to stop until it's done. So we were watching TV and um, one of the Avenger movies came on and it was the Infinity War. And of course, when it was over, I'm like, well, now I got to go watch Endgame because I just can't stop in the middle, right? So, you know, it's a three hour movie. It was big commitment, but I'm like, I'm dedicated and I've seen it before. So when I've seen something before, it allows me to see it from a different perspective. I know how it's going to end. So I look for other nuances and I was so struck by one, the genius of Marvel, if you will, that they wove so many threads throughout a decade. And if you didn't see, you could miss some of these little cool nuanced things because they were hidden in a movie that was done eight years ago about one of the side characters. But this one part is when you go back, I think to the very first Avenger movie and Thor is there and all of them are kind of getting to know each other and they go through this, who can pick up Thor's hammer, right? And he is just like, whatever, (laughs) nobody, you know? And so you have all these people with their egos, which was just so interesting. I can do it. I can do it. You know, Tony Stark is invention I can do it and and no one was able to do it um except when Captain America went to pick it up it moved ever so slightly and it's so funny to see Thor's face of like panic almost and like wait what and so I have you have that moment and then you come forward to the end game and he is distraught and he's gained weight and he's upset and he goes back in time and it's this thing he holds out his hand because he's back in his home and the hammer comes to him and he's I'm still worthy right I'm still worthy so this idea of his fear wasn't that someone else could pick it up his fear is that that worthiness to wield this thing would have to be distributed to someone else. Mm. And then at the end, you see that Captain America does have the power to wield that. And Thor's response was, I knew it. My husband's perspective is that Captain America could always pick it up. Mm. Didn't because that was Mm. his character. He didn't want to usurp that. He didn't want to insert himself in that way. But he always had the ability and authority and worthiness to do that. So I bring that up because it matters. Something you've gone through 10 years ago and this side thing that you don't even think is related to your life right now, those things, we have this worthiness, this ability to carry and maneuver things, but there are systems in place that prevent that opportunity often from being able to be laid before us for us to pick it up right? I'm not suggesting that it necessarily needs to be handed to, right? But I am saying when an opportunity is laid before a person and they have the ability to pick something up and shoulder it, that carries a totally different, I think, perspective than people who are just handed it and they can just wield it around without having been in the circumstances that, you know, those like, for example, with people literally who are in the community, who are highly invested in their spaces can do outside of people in the ivory tower, right? Who are right. looking down saying, this is what you need. So those are all things that yeah. came to mind when you were kind of talking about, and as we've been discussing power and things like that. Yeah, I love that. It's really good. I, you know, and it makes me think like in some ways, there are some among us, there are leaders among us, there are the hidden leaders among us who maybe haven't ever been invited into that responsibility of picking up that thing and then therefore don't know how to wield it because they just haven't been invited. I think there are others among us who, um, who have, have, have a pathway to picking up the thing, um, but uh, shy away because, of the, because I think somehow we know responsibility comes with authority. I think if it's, if it's, if it's, what I would call like restorative authority, if it's, if it's wielded in a responsible way, 
I think sometimes we shy away from it because we don't want the responsibility. But then there are others, whether it's handed to them um, or they choose to pick it up, that don't wield that well. And it does a lot of damage, as you're saying. Our decisions matter, our choices matter. So I would be really interested to hear from you, Shonda, like as you, because I think it's brilliant to think about how do you walk with influencers or let's just call them leaders. Mm -hmm. How do you walk with leaders um, through a healing journey? I would be curious if you have any sense of, are there some common things with which or from which leaders or influencers need, need to heal from? We all have our own stories and our journeys, I'm sure, but the, the leaders or the influencers that we see doing damage, <laughs> what are those things that we need to heal from? You know, and you said it already, is it ego? Well, you know, what are those things? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing that I'm coming to is it's, it's, it's helping people, leaders, understand their littles. And the littles are what I call our inner children. Those spaces of inner wounding that pop up without our permission in the middle of a phone call and we move into our adapted selves, survival strategies in ways that we don't, we're not even conscious that it exists. And more than not, we call it our personality. Mm. And so these are my hope is to go into these spaces and help people understand how they got to where they are. And I don't necessarily mean the place of authority or power or leadership position, but how you've come to be who you are. Yeah. And if people could start to understand that, then it gives them this thing. So in my exploration about power, what I said, so yeah, there's power, there's authority, decision-making, and, and there's access. Then I had to sit with kind of what I hear you saying, shying away from is when I look at the many identities that I hold, um, black woman, big bodied, grew up on the edge of poverty, all of these things were disempowered identities. Mm. However, I am an extremely powerful person. And being able to sit and be like, huh, no, I, I really am powerful. Okay, well, Shonda, what does that mean? What, what, what makes you think or feel? I feel powerful. Mm, yeah. And it is, I have voice choice and control. Hmm. I have a voice. I use my voice. I recognize that anytime I think that I only have one option, that's because I'm backed into a corner and I need to come into the middle of the room and realize that I have more options. I yeah. always have choice. They might not be choices I like, <laughs> they may not feel good, but I operated so much of my life from a, a survival perspective that I did because I had to. I respond because this is how I do it. I, I didn't realize there was choice embedded in my life. And I have control because of those choices. And so I was able to realize that I have power in ways that people never taught me that it was there, let alone how to use it. That's what I want to do. I want to help people understand that how you are, how you are potentially using your power right now is all in service of helping those littles feel safe. Mm. And if you've been disempowered, if you've been abused, if you have been neglected, if you have had these experiences, then you get power and you're going to use that in a way that is going to shield you from that past pain. So if that means that you become authoritarian or authoritative and you're saying, nope, my way or the highway, that makes that little girl or boy feel really safe. Yeah. But when you begin to help them heal those spaces, when you actually help them understand this is what that little needs, they need nurturance, not power. They need power with, not power over. Then can you imagine that person being like, oh, yeah. So I can do this thing to help myself feel safe and I don't have to use the power of my office or my celebrity or my money or all these things to do it. Oh, then I can do something different with those things and still feel safe. So while it's not a particular uh, specific like event, I think people need to heal from these relational and developmental experiences that they just thought were normal. 
this is just my life. This is just how it is. This is just what my family does. This is just how my community operates. And then be able to create spaces within themselves of safety. I think that's a game changer. (laughs) I I, I love that. Yeah. It's world changing and, and I'm already doing the work. Yeah. Right. It's just now figuring out how to move my work to the platform yeah. that can reach these people because they, they're not looking for me. Right. They don't feel broken or right. wounded or unfold. Right. They feel successful and, and they are doing the thing, living their quote unquote best life. So they're not looking for me right. <laughs> to come and be like, actually, let's really help you get to that spot. So that, that's, that's what, um, that's what it means for me. Wow. What a vision. Thanks for sharing it. That's beautiful. That's powerful. (laughs) I can see, yeah, the the impact of something like that. And I I guess I just, I resonate with, um, with this sort of reconnection to an inner child, a reconnection to a childlike part of yourself. And of course, that is a carry as a place where many of us carry pain through experience or upbringing or family system or whatever that is. But there can also, I think, be something of joy and hope to be found in a, a revisiting of that childlike self. And I know for me personally, someone who struggled deeply with, um, with perfectionism um, and with this sort of inflated idea that if it's, if, 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 if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. High expectation, these types of things. I've personally had to return to like, what was the eight-year-old version of myself? What, who was she? Mm-hmm. Where did this start? And to begin to heal, I think for me, has been to look at that eight-year-old little girl where I think some of this started, started mm-hmm. um, and look at her with a diff- just through a different lens to say like, there's a sweetness in her too. Yes. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a childlikeness in her too. And when that thing in me starts to rear its ugly head, don't push her away, kind of embrace and heal, yes! <laughs> which I think is what you're talking about. Oh, um, yes. So yeah. Anyway, I had to give my eight year old inner child a name to help, yeah. <laughs> to, help to help me welcome her. It's like, come, there's no need for you to act that way. Come have a cup of tea. <laughs> yes. I mean, girl, this is it, right? Yeah. And yeah. you're so right. It's, it's not just addressing the trauma. It is realizing that there is joy and yeah. imagination and play and spontaneity and all of these things because it is the nature of a child. Yes. The very nature of a child. You know, I've said this before. I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but I'm so fascinated. Um, So if we talk context, if we talk scriptural context, I was always fascinated that scripture says, unless you become as one of these, you will not enter the kingdom, right? So I read this and I'm like, "Mm, interesting. Unless you become as one of these, yeah, we spend so much time trying to make little children adults instead of learning from them. What does it mean to be like one of these kids? And it is not what we're doing. Sit down, be quiet, sit still, don't get dirty. What are you doing? Do this. Do That's not the nature of a child. A child is spontaneous. How do children learn? Through exploration, through play. Watch a child learn how to walk. Stumble, fall, stumble, fall, stumble, fall, laugh, smile, excited. Let's do it again. They're building all these muscles. And then we adults with our wounds and our pain swoop in and go nope that's not how you do it child you got to do it this way like that's that's not how it goes it's supposed to be the other way around yeah we have that inside of us what can we learn from that child yes she gets scared and she might shut down and shrink and try not to take up space that's her adapted response to pain but if we can help her feel safe, what can we learn from her? You know, the kid who wants to run out in the middle of the street, the kid is not stupid. They just, they're, they're going for what they want, <laughs> right? And yes, there are dangers around and we have to learn to be aware of those things. But what if we just went for it? What if we were, you know, that, that imagine a quarter of our world's leadership leaning into play, joy, spontaneity. Totally. Uh, and realizing there's no shame in failure, you know, there's, there's yes. no, there's no shame in it. I mean, I think how much of my life I've spent, you know, even as a designer, where like experimentation play, these should be normal parts of, of, uh, of that work and of that um, vocation and how much time I have spent just, just feeling deep 
shame around failure, around messing up, you know. Um, and but to, again, to, it's it's a reorienting of our posture towards some of those things, and to yeah. say that this is not something to be ashamed of. This, let's celebrate that yeah. you didn't do it, but it's okay, you know. Yeah. What you um, learned? Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah, good stuff. So, Meg, how is your labor of love of gathering and guiding people showing up in your life now that? People's Liberty is a year gone. And what's yeah. that looking like for you now? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, I think I've spent the past decade or more, you know, if I had to sort of uh, uh, try to articulate what I've been up to, um, you know, it really has been this accompaniment, guiding people, companioning people as they try to bring to life their good ideas for the sake of the city, for the sake of neighborhoods. And that's been a joy. Um, about two years ago now, almost two years ago, I began to sort of sense that there was something stirring, stirring in me, some, something that wanted to be born in me, something new. And as I started to kind of pay attention to that, I think what I was starting to realize was that for me, as I sat with people and said, you know, why do you want to do this thing? What, why does this matter to you? What part of your story connects to why you want to do this project, you know, and on and on what I was beginning to find was that we were entering into deeper and deeper levels of conversation and they were becoming quite spiritual conversations. You know, you're learning that the reason this person wants to do this particular thing is because when they were eight years old or because they had this experience and that's why it matters to them. And so as I began to enter more conversations with people around just calling, um, you know, around passion, around why their heart longs to do the thing, those were just becoming deeper and deeper spiritual conversations. And I realized that I actually really enjoy those conversations, whether or not there's some manifest shiny thing at the other end that the public can see. I was really enjoying asking those questions of why, why does this matter to you? What's this about to you? And so um, as I was trying to pay attention to maybe what was happening in me, I think I began to sort of say, well, maybe there's a deeper calling here for me. And I started to explore, um, spiritual direction as a potential vocational pathway. And spiritual direction was not something that I was particularly familiar with. Um, I think it's more commonly understood in, in Catholic circles as to what spiritual direction is. But to, some, to, to give you kind of a general sense, it's essentially accompaniment. It's companionship for one's spiritual journey, for one's working out who they are in relation to who God is. And, um, and so I began to enter, I entered into sort of a two year sort of formation process to begin to practice spiritual direction, to sit with people. And the primary kind of tools, so to speak, of spiritual direction is deep listening, um, prayer, and asking questions, which are all things I love to do. <laughs> and so, um, so right now, the, the, the gathering and the guiding the guiding in particular has a lot more to do with um, walking with people on their spiritual path. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a real deep, deep joy as I'm just exploring this, this new path for myself to start to accompany people in that way. It's, it's just been beautiful. So, yeah, so that's what I'm up to now. <laughs> so here's a question. Thank you so sure. much for sharing that. Does this spiritual guide necess necessitate that a person be on a Christian spiritual journey? That's a great question. <clears throat> um, and I would say too, that the, the, um, the name director or guide can be a little bit of a, it's an unfortunate name because what I want to say is in direction, I am there. We are co-listeners. We are sitting together and in a Christian context. Yes, we are sitting there um, uh, with the, with the um, understanding that we are there with spirit. There is another presence with us and we are listening to what that spirit is speaking into your life or doing in your life. I like to say we're basically dusting for God's fingerprints on your journey. And the fun fundamental question is, yeah, what's God up to? <laughs> and what am I going to do about it? So I am trained um, in a Christian context, and that is my faith tradition. Um, and so that's where I probably would be most comfortable with uh, walking with people or journeying with people. But I don't think it has to be. And in fact, I think it's, um, it's really interesting, I think, to, to sit with people who, who might identify more... Um, as an atheist, or maybe they don't have a particular faith or don't feel 
that closeness to God. Because even if you're an atheist, you know, in some ways I would want to say you have something to say about God. It's that he doesn't exist. And so let's talk about that. Let's get into that. Um, and so, yeah, I, while, while for me, the, the Christian tradition is, is where I sit and, and where, I, um, where I'm most comfortable with folks, I don't think you have to be. And I, I welcome those opportunities. I, I, I'm really deeply interested in who do people think God is and what's that relationship like? Is there one? And if not, like, let's talk about that. You know, I'm interested in it. Mm-hmm. I, I really can appreciate the curiosity of the journey that mm. you're describing. Um, the more I heal, the more I mature. I think the more I move into my work as a therapist, I have been able to let go of this notion that I have to have the answers. Yes. And I am so loving, and I always say all the time, not trying to blindside you, like I want to tell you ahead of time, I don't have a lot of answers, but I got a lot of good questions. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and that for some people, they come and it's like, tell me what to do. And I'm like, wrong person, which is why I yes. do the consultation ahead of time. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I can't, I won't, it's not my place, but man, we can sit with some questions. Yes. Yes. I think that's exactly, you're speaking my language because I think what um, the practice of direction is, and it's important that we call it a practice because in the same way, I'm no guru, I'm no expert. I'm just a fellow um, companion on the same journey. (laughs) We're on different journeys, but we're on a journey together. And um, yeah, what I often say is we are trying to help people expand their capacity to sit with questions and expand their capacity to sit in unknowing, to not have to have an answer. And I think where the church has really failed us is um, when people start asking questions, when people start doubting, when people have various um, stages of their faith, some of which is dark night of the soul, doubt kind of stuff, questioning whether or not God is good and God is real, instead of honoring those questions, we sort of cast them out. Mm -hmm. And so I think the work of a director, spiritual director or companion is to say, we don't have to answer the questions, but I'm going to honor the questions by sitting with you in the questions as long as we need to. And it's important to say that it's not a one and done, you know, in, in a practical sense, I meet with people for usually 60 minutes at a time, once a month, let's say, And it's predicated on the idea that this is a long, slow, contemplative walk we are on. We might get some insight here today. We might hear from spirit here today. We might also just sit in some silence. And that's going to be okay and good for you too. (laughs) So, um, you know, I'm often trying to, I think the, again, the modality of direction is we're trying to slow things down. Everyone, we're all so high, strong, high, fast pace. Let's slow down and listen listen to what's happening on the landscape of our life and trust that if we listen, it's going to help us connect where we need to go. And um, yeah, what a great, I mean, right. It's great to sit with people in questions. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is. It also requires a special gifting. I believe mm, we, yeah. people are not equipped or gifted yes. or see the, the value and power in that sitting yes. with someone in that space you know, when we were doing our kind of pre-interview talk, I, I said this, I said this to my husband last night, I want to say it on the podcast. You know, I've, I talk, I, I enjoy talking. I do. I really enjoy listening. Yeah. I enjoy being in connection with others. And I find that I'm able to have some very, you know, significant and deep conversations with people about what's happening in the world. And I find that I'm able to have some significant and deep conversations, some deep spiritual conversations with people. They don't often happen with the same person, right? There seem to just be these two spheres. And so what I have always enjoyed about our connection, you and I, Meg, is that we can take both of those things in the same conversation within the same two people and sit and we never feel like we have to end it with, so what's the answer? <laughs> right. So what are we doing? You know, it's, it's right. just, you know, those moments of silence where neither of us feel like we have to fill it with mm. something that we can just sit 
and reflect. That is so powerful. It's so meaningful to me. As you were talking, you know, I, I can say like, hmm, it's interesting that pastors in the traditional sense are not trained to be spiritual guides or spiritual directors. There's a part of me that's like, okay, oh, you know, like I, it, 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 it gets my body all, you know, I, this thing because it, and it, but it's the same conversation I was just having, you know, pastorship within the Christian tradition, generally speaking, was an avenue by which, and I, I'm even, this is more broad. I'm going to bring it even in more narrow to the, the black Christian tradition mm. within America. And the pulpit was a place where traditionally a black man could arrive with far less barriers in leadership than other places due to systemic racism and classism and all of these things, right? And so I have seen the trajectory from slavery to modern day Christianity within the Black tradition or the Black culture be this place where they could wield that sword, that hammer. Wow. That that didn't, that you couldn't deny access to that in the way you could corporate America, for example. But so much wounding gets exacerbated behind the pulpit. And when I think about the physical structure of it, so now I'm going to zoom out of just the Black context and just go to the American Christian context. And you look at it and there is the raised platform. There's the, the podium. There's the, the, the seating behind the podium um, for the elite with the ones in the middle being almost like thrones. And it is so amazing to watch it and watch literally the elevation and the podium that provides a barrier that, that it's almost like armor, <laughs> but I'm not talking like the armor of God. I'm talking oh. about it, 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 it's impenetrable to the, the critique or the concerns of the people. So I've watched this play out. And to, to, to be clear, it's not unjust criticism because I hold the certificate that tells me I get to stand behind that podium. So that's the thing. I'm not coming at this from an outside perspective. I've walked up the stairs, been in the <laughs> elevated platform. I've stood behind the podium with the microphone, but I've been connected enough to my body to go, oh, this is dangerous. I could feel, I, I, I get it. I I do. I get it because when I'm with you, I'm on this microphone, there's no barrier between us. And there really is no barrier between me and my listeners as I am so transparent out to the world, but you get back there and I, it's so easy to just naturally assume this position of authority and I can say whatever I want, because what you gonna say back, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And and I can come from an authority. And it, so I just, I'm saying that to say that I, I'm not even, it's not even judgmental. I, I'm just being real. It's there. Mm. And if we, if we, I, if, if we can't be aware of the wounds that make us want to yield this hammer in ways that keep us safe and protected, then we're isolating ourselves from the human collective congregant experience of togetherness that I hear you talking about, that exists in my counseling room, that exists when I do tra- those things where you sit in a circle where there's no head, what? Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you mean? Who, well, who's in charge? And we have been conditioned to look for who's in charge yeah. so that we can so they can have the authority and tell us what to do. What I hear you saying, what I hear you saying in your work is people probably come wanting to give you that authority. <laughs> tell me, Meg, what should I do? You know, and you're like, well, I'm gonna be sitting here right next to you. Let, let's, let's sit and wait and listen. And man, that's it. Oh man, everything you're speaking to, um, you're, you're preaching to me. Um, I, I, you know, I think, 
look, I just have to look at, I have to look at the gospel and I have to look at G, the character of Jesus, right? So leader, he had all the authority in the world <laughs> to, 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 it was bestowed upon him. He had all the power and all the authority. And how did he wield it? He sat with his people. He taught, he led by asking questions. You know, you, I have to look at, I have to look at the way of him. Um, to start to understand and to keep a vision alive for what I long for leadership to look like, for mm -hmm. what I long for leadership in the church to look like. And I think when we, because you're talking about access again, right? When you're talking about who's kind of up behind the pulpit and who's kind of, who are the minions down in the congregation, mm -hmm. we've made, in this case, Christianity, we've made it a two-tier system, multiple tier system, but let's just keep it simple. Two-tier system, as if the gospel is somehow this two-tier thing. That's not what the gospel is, you know? Um, uh, and so I think I'm just, I long for different, a different embodiment of leadership and the thing that I see Shonda and this is where I think um, yeah I think women have a unique gifting and calling and way of nurturing creating and tending to wombs mm -hmm. <laughs> spaces and places and the shape of things with which um, new life can grow and so when we lead in a ways that want to squash life <laughs> by wielding that power and authority and saying, we are up here and you are down there, that to me is not the work of the gospel. But I think women who have been shut out of that for a long time, 2000 years, have a unique way of leading. And I think we need to pay attention. And of course, it's easy for you and I to sit here and say this, but we need to pay attention to women. And we need to pay attention to people of color and voices of color and people who have been marginalized for so long, because I think they are the prophets in our midst who are going to show us and bring revival to the church. And now I'm preaching at you, but I think it's critical <laughs> and I long for it. I long. Um, yeah. I just long for us to lead in new ways and to, and to elevate the everyday leaders among us who are ready to lead and have been leading in those ways for a long time. I, I, I will now pass the collection plate and no, I, I receive it. I love it. And, and, you know, what's so interesting to me when we talk about women leadership, when we talk about black people, leadership, we talk about people of color. So there are certain things that are undeniable. I don't think people are denying them. I don't think that people are denying a woman's innate ability to, um, to nurture and to create a fullness. What I do think is they are refusing to call that leadership. Yes. Thank you. Right. Thank you. So yeah. they, they, whoever <laughs> the, the invisible yeah. they that show up understand that the church itself doesn't exist without women. There is right. no denying it from the fight. Who's funding it. Yeah. Who's showing up. Who's yeah. doing up. There's no denying that there's just a refusal to acknowledge that as leadership yeah as authority as power yes and that is where you know these dynamics occur right yeah. and so it is not even we you know yes we do need to pay attention to women and and then the same thing like with the kids turning them into adults then we'll say okay fine i acknowledge this woman she can be a leader as long as she leads like a man as exactly. long as she steps in and does the same patriarchal, as long as she exists in the way, you know, if, if, if she's going to exist in this patriarchal way, then yeah, then she's a leader. Yeah. Um, well, I think what I want to just say to, I mean, yeah, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. And I, I think, um, you know, it's interest. it's been interesting for me to kind of um, meditate on what's the difference between a woman and leadership and what's the difference between, between a female leader. So woman in leadership versus female leadership. I think those are actually two different things. And that's what you're speaking to is like, yeah, there have been ways, you know, I've been under the leadership of a female lead pastor for the past seven years, but I think we have, we have uh, designed a system in which that particular leader has had to lead in a patriarchal way. Um, and within that kind of context and not by her own doing, I think that's just what the system does. So yeah, I think, yeah, we're, we're longing for that same thing. And I want to keep holding on to that vision and to embolden again, more, 
more emerging leaders in our midst and calling them leaders, you know, yes. calling them leaders. Yeah. yeah, I I appreciate that. And, you know, add to that mix, youth, um, young people who we can't deny their impact on our world. We just refuse to call them leaders. Yeah. We refuse to um, allow them space within a system where they can create it in a way that uh, utilizes their gifts without it being intimidating to those who feel they would lose power. Mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciate all of this so very much. And I know we could talk for hours because that's what we do. However, <laughs> for the sake of, um, you know, beginning to wrap things up, just curious if there's anything else that you have for me and my listeners today of just anything you would like to share? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. An open question. You know, I, I think I just, I feel, I feel led to remind us all to pay attention. You know, I think we are obviously in a culture of distraction and there's a lot of things always vying for our attention but I really believe that like where we fix our eyes and what we give our time forms us and sometimes not in great ways. And as we're talking about things like you're saying, Shonda, how do we heal? Um, When I'm talking about things like how do we restore the broken parts of our systems and our neighborhoods and our churches and all of this, I think we have to start paying attention. We have to start paying attention to that inner child within ourselves we have to start paying closer attention to what's our heart saying to us here. We know our head will speak a lot to us. What's our heart saying and what are we going to do about that? We need to pay attention to who is in our midst. Who are the everyday prophets and poets and peacemakers and leaders who just need an invitation, who just need an open door. And I think we can really, yeah, paying attention. I'll just leave us with that. Pay attention. No, that's beautiful. Pay attention. That resonates so very much for me. When we talk about the system as it exists, right, there is an ultimate authority um, in many ways in the church, outside the church. We want that person to have power, authority, and have answers. And when I think of it that way, it makes sense to me why it's hard to allow the voice of the emerging prophet or the prophet who we don't want to call a prophet because we take, we, we want to take all information as truth, yeah. which is why the internet is a very dangerous place. (laughs) It's why social media is so dangerous. What if, what if we stopped receiving information from the perspective that it somehow has to be truth and we just pay attention to what we're hearing And we move into these spaces of exploration, of deep listening. We don't have to commit to that thing that person said being true and I don't agree with it. It doesn't fit my life. Therefore, they're wrong or I'm wrong. But what if we just sat with, I'm curious about that. Yeah. That's interesting. If, If we became a little more curious, I believe that we would be heading in that direction of that dream that I see. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'd be, yes, I think we'd be expanding our own capacity to sit with mess and mystery a little bit longer. And I think when we're in a year that's been full of, of crazy, you know, I think we all could learn how to sit with the mess a little bit longer and to accept that there are things outside of our control that are mysterious and we can't always know. And it's going to be okay. Even in the mess and mystery, it's going to be okay. Yeah, that's beautiful. Meg, I've enjoyed this so, so much. And I am so grateful to you. If someone um, is intrigued by something you said, would like to find you or uh, contact you, how could they do that? Yeah, you can. I have a website. It's just my whole name. So megantrishler.com. And it's just a bit of a, it's, uh, you can find out more about my spiritual direction practice on that site, um, some of the community development work I've done. And then I write from time to time, blog a little bit. So yeah, you can find me on there, megantrishler.com. 
Awesome. We will definitely have that in the show notes. And I like to round out uh, each episode by asking my guests to share a fun, interesting, or little known fact about themselves. (laughs) I'm always so bad with these questions. A fun, interesting, or little known fact. Oh, gracious. Um, Well, growing up in Michigan where I did, I I was quite an athlete growing up and I used to play hockey (laughs) and I was really good at hockey and I think most people who know me now would never imagine that but um yeah and so I still every once in a while I get this real urge to get out rollerblades and like go and play hockey so if anybody wants to play hockey with me (laughs) I'm also looking for teammates well that is it yes and as a person who knows you I'm like really I tilt my head trying to imagine you playing hockey, but I love it. I know. I'm very small, but it means I'm low to the ground and agile, and I can just speed past those boys, which is what I did for most of my teenage years. That is awesome. I love it. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Meg, so much gratitude for you taking the time out to spend with me today. I appreciate it so much. You got it. Blessings to you and all of the listeners. Thank you. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all of the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg of Instant Classic Media, and of course, to you, my listeners. I do not take it for granted that you spend time listening to me and my guests. If you'd like to get in touch with me, if you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out at www.thelaborsoflove.com. Don't forget we're on all the major social media outlets, our YouTube channel, where every Thursday we have our Therapy Thursday videos. And of course, don't forget to give us that five-star rating, review, and share the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.